Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. Before I get started this week, it would seem remiss for me not to mention Roe v. Wade being overturned in the U.S. Supreme Court. If it loses me a few listeners, so be it, but I will say that I am devastated. I don't have solutions, but if you're American, or honestly, wherever you're from, I encourage you to vote in every single election. Even if we take two steps back for every step forward, those single steps will eventually get us to where we, or the next generations, deserve to be. I'm also including a link to an article at globalcitizen.org, six ways you can take action right now for abortion rights. If like me, you're not exactly sure what to do next, but you feel like you absolutely have to take further action. This week, I'm speaking to Vicki Larson. My chat with Vicki is topical this week. We talk about her book, Not Too Old for That, and through it, talk about everything from how as women, we need to take ownership of our bodies and our health, to learning about investments as women, to sex at any age, or not if you so choose. Though the overlying message is you're not too old for that, the underlying message is best described in Vicky's words. Whenever women get a little bit of power, there's always a pushback. We see that all the time. And women, I would love to support each other in just our womanhood. We have differences because of all sorts of things, but we are women in this world. And because of that, we have shared experiences. Let's be supportive of each other because there's power in numbers. And let's advocate for each other. And please, let's advocate for ourselves be kind to the future women we're becoming. Hi, Vicki. I'm so glad you're here today because I've, through all fault of my own, have been waiting a long time to get to chat with you. So welcome to the second chapter. Kristen, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. The second chapter deals with, as a rule, women who have changed their lives and or careers after 60, or after 65, after 35. I, I know my own tag, tagline. You've had some change, but you've also written a book not too old for that, how women are changing the story of aging. So I felt like between the two, you definitely were a really exciting guest to have on. Thank you. I'm not sure how exciting I am, but if you said it, I agree. (laughs) Yes. Take it and run with it. So I warned you before we started recording, I was going to throw a little curveball your way. In the past, I have occasionally asked people, especially people that are like writer types, if you had to tell me your life in chapters, what would that be? I'm not going to ask you that. Rather, I'm going to give you the titles of the chapters in your book, Not Too Old for That. And I want you to tell me your story because I feel like having read the book, that so much of your own story is wrapped up in this book. And I don't mean that in a bad way. We all have had this invisibility thing. We've seen this as we start getting older. So I would love to go through the book without giving too much way about the book, but through your own life. Does that work for you? It does. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Fortunately, the first part of the book is an introduction. And without you even having to say anything, I have got to read a little bit of this out loud because it was so relatable for me, if you don't mind me quoting your own book to you. Go right ahead. It's brilliant. (laughs) All right. The women we're becoming. I was 45 when my 13-year marriage imploded, nearly 48 when we divorced. Why couldn't this have happened 10 years ago when I was younger and prettier? I remember thinking to myself, who will want me now? As it turns out, actually, I'm going to let you tell us how as it turns out. But you do go on to say that your 55-year-old husband had been carrying on a long-term affair with a younger woman and you felt like it was a cliche. Now, the reason I say it's so relatable to me, the ages aren't the same. And in fact, I was younger 
but not by a ton. I was younger and having the exact same thoughts. I'm such a cliche. Why didn't this happen when I was younger and prettier? So this is your introduction. Tell us a little bit about what led up to that. And yeah, the as it turns out. Yeah, that is actually my first thought. Why couldn't this have happened when I was younger and prettier is what happens when you internalize ageism and sexism and the fear of getting older as a woman. Because we hear those messages about what it's like to be an older woman, and it's never positive. Never. So, of course, I was devastated by the discovery of my former husband's affair. And I do need to say we are very friendly and we've co-parented our kids, lovely and wonderful. And there's no bad feelings about anything about the past. The past is past. We've moved on. But I was devastated at the time. And, And so feeling that feeling and then... I catch the eye of a, I think he was 26-year-old Jude Law lookalike, but when Jude Law was in the good days. Men can go downhill a little bit too. (laughs) Pulling up okay when he was young, it was pretty devastatingly gorgeous. And I just, this was someone uh, close by and uh, so we had this brief fling and he actually remains a very good friend to this day. There was something about him that was very mature and different. And he actually led me to discovering the Hoffman process where I went to figure out my marriage and what I was going to do. And that was absolutely life changing for me because I figured I was responsible in some way for allowing this dysfunction in my marriage to happen. And I wanted to figure it out instead of just pointing my fingers at my former husband. And so there I was, I'm like, okay, older husband wants a younger woman and some younger dude wants me. And I thought maybe midlife is not going to be so bad after all. And what is very interesting, it wasn't just a dynamic for me, but among many of my girlfriends around the same age as I was at the time, who also were experiencing marital disruptions, also found these younger men just picked up on their energy. This, I'm free, I'm available, I'm open, I'm sexy and juicy. And so we all had those little brief flings. And not to say that. I needed affirmation from another person and from a man and a younger man. But at the moment, it felt okay. Vicky's got her groove back. Yeah, I do think maybe you didn't need it or maybe you don't need it now. But at the time, like you said, you were thinking, why now? This This isn't the most amazing, sexy I've ever felt, or especially after a shocking discovery or divorce. And I do think that there is just something that looking back, it's easy to say, I don't need this. But at the time, at the time it was like, yeah, (laughs) it was a big F you to the world who told me I was undesirable because I was middle-aged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as we're still in the introduction phase, going backwards a little bit, what was... Life before that, I know you've been a long-term journalist and writer and you have an amazing blog and things like that. But what was happening up to that point? So I had gone to college to study environmental science because a hippie girl was going to save the world. And after about a year and a half of college, I went cross country with friends, reconnected with an old boyfriend, came back from that trip 
told my parents, I'm dropping out of college. I'm following Bob out to Colorado and you can't stop me. And they were like, what? Go destroy your life. And so I did that. And then I married him a few months before my 20th first birthday. And then uh, we moved back to New York. And anyway, that was my start of marriage. Didn't last very long. And then I went back to school, became a journalist, blah, blah, blah. Met my, the man who would be my second husband, moved to San Francisco to be with him. And then then we married and then we had two wonderful boys and I wanted children. He wanted children, too. And so I dropped back in work. I worked part time, but the agreement was I would be the mom at home. He made more money than I did. He was older than I was. He was more established in his career. And so that's what I was doing. I was working part time and mommying two boys who were nearly the death of me. And then when when the divorce happened, the second divorce, then I had to go back to work full time and with two tweens. And so that's where it was. And, and then I started I started a blog and I started writing for the Huffington Post divorce and that led to the first book I co-wrote and that led to this book. And I joke with my former husband that I like, I'm so glad you married me so I could divorce you so I could write, I could write books. Because I honestly, Kristen, I, I don't know if that would have happened. Probably not. And so in a very weird way, it was a gift. And I know anyone listening to this go, oh my God, what a horrible thing to do. You disrupted your children's lives. But my former husband and I co-parented kindly. We lived close to each other. We celebrate all the things with our kids together. Yeah, I would never say divorce is a happy thing for kids. But my kids go, yeah, you guys did it right. I also think that an unhappy marriage is not a happy situation for kids. So if I had my choice... I don't think married for kids is not a good thing. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It's a horrible thing. And all the research points to that. And even the children themselves say that. The first official chapter is The Amazing Invisible Woman. The funny thing is, I, I, I know I was supposed to feel invisible. And I know that a lot of women write all these thought pieces on feeling invisible once they hit a certain age. I... It didn't feel invisible. I still was dating and there were certainly men who were interested in dating a woman my age. I I didn't feel like if I went to a bar, a bartender was dissing me for a younger. I, I didn't. But maybe there's something wrong with me. When I started researching for the book, what you realize is that there are a lot of women walking around the world who always feel invisible, not just once they hit midlife. Disabled women, LGBTQ women, a lot of marginalized women feel invisible. And and so I felt like it was important to acknowledge that if you are missing the male gaze, well, is it just that you're older or I just wanted women to be aware that um, what is it you're feeling invisible from? Now, I will say that because I work for newspapers and they have not done well in recent years mm-hmm. and uh, there were massive layoffs, not only at my newspaper, but at newspapers across the globe, really. I was always aware that, oh, it might be very hard for me to find another job in my 40s or 50s. So I was aware of that, but I don't think that's invisibility. It's not like companies don't see women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They don't want us. 
And that's a different thing. That's not invisibility. You're not invisible. They're making a conscious choice to not have you. It's not that they don't see you and they don't know that you exist. I do think it is really interesting because you saying it being a conscious decision. Yeah, you can see me, but why aren't my qualifications good enough? I've got a lifetime of experience. And I've talked to a lot of people that have had major career changes that between the age thing and it not being specific, its employers couldn't see the value of life experience or slightly different experience. Yes. And I'm just as we're talking, I'm thinking, I wonder if the whole menopause thing factors into that because I just did a piece for an online magazine on talking to your male romantic partner about menopause. Mm. And if there are men hiring they're looking at a woman in her 40s and 50s and going, oh, my God, hot mess, hormonal hot mess. And maybe that factors in. I don't know. I just came to me. But there might be many reasons why a company might not want a woman because of um, ageism and sexism, for sure. But it's not invisibility. It's not. They know we're out there. That's a really refreshing way to look at it or really an interesting way to look at it because we say, oh, I've become invisible. But I think it's really empowering to say, you see me. Excuse me. I know better. That's right. Yeah. You know better. And yet, because we're dealing with sexism still constantly. I should say, too, you are speaking from the amount of research that's gone into this book because the pages and pages of footnotes. I'm saying this because for the most part, I would look and go, oh, my God, there's so many footnotes and you immediately assume it's dry or something. This is the most interesting book, but it is so based in research and fact. How many years of research? Because I can't even imagine how long it took to put this book together. I, it came together unbelievably fast, which is why there, I like basically broke down in tears at the beginning. Was, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was stupid. Maybe this was a bad idea. I, but then the more I did get into the research and it was a lot of work. Yeah, I think it was 32 pages of, yeah, I don't know if I can ever do that again. But the more I did the research, the angrier I got because it, it did actually confirm what I was feeling. It was feeling, but I wasn't, you can't write a book about how you're feeling and just what you're experiencing. You have to back it up with the research. And of course, there's so many more female researchers out there doing stuff from a woman's perspective. And it made me really angry when I started to do some of the research because I just feel like women have been getting a raw deal for so long. And I think we're done with that. I think one of the things we are done with, I just spoke with somebody a few weeks ago um, for the podcast that talked a lot about this, but I think one of the things we're done with is that we are the passive pleasure giver in the bedroom. And I know your next chapter was called, I'll have what she's having. I just rewatched When Harry Met Sally again, and I swear that scene is so brilliant. And it it's so relevant even with dealing with men that you're getting to know in the dating world right now, because I am single. They're, yes, they're very worried that a woman of my age would not be interested in sex or will have lost her libido, but they at their age, a.k.a. my age or older, they're like, always oh, good to go. Everything's good. It's all working because they've been told so. And I'm like, mm, watch that movie again. <laughs> I was going to say, if anybody hasn't seen it, which would be surprise me, but the I'll have what she's having is a very famous line after Meg Ryan uh, uh, fakes an orgasm in a restaurant quite loudly to show that most of the time women are faking it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. But I will say that I... 
my former husband and I had a good sex life. We did. No, no complaints. However, I think I was sitting on the, on the bleachers, uh, like one of my son's Little League games and Somehow the topic of sex came up because it does. It, this happens in the bleachers sometimes. And, you know, a woman who'd been married a while said, you know, yeah, I'm just not really interested in sex, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, yeah, you know what? If you were like me and you had a new boyfriend and he was like turning you on, you'd be interested in sex. It's because you're not interested in sex with your husband. That doesn't mean you are not interested in sex. Yes, my midlife and to this day, I'm a very sexual woman. I'm a sensual woman. I am not ready to give up that part of my life at all. And I'm also much more demanding of making sure that everyone's having pleasure, not just the guys. There's no faking orgasm so that some woman can say, I'll have what she's having. No. <laughs> and in some of the research I did, I think there was one study, I think it was a match singles in America that they do in conjunction with like, Helen Fisher. She does a lot of research on sexuality. It was like women peak at age 66, which I will become this summer. So I have something really to look forward to. And I will let you know. Yes, it's been great all along and I have something to look forward to. <laughs> People are obviously gravitating to the story, but one of the, and I'm not going to ruin the whole book, I've already said, but one of the things that is such an interesting story that you quote in the book is a 91-year-old woman who's had her first orgasm. I hate that it took 91 years, but I love the story. <laughs> yeah. So my friend Eve told us that story that she'd gone to visit her mom in Florida and her mom was like giddy. And she's like, when? And she's like, Eve, Eve, how do you know what to do with his fingers? Because she had been married for a long time to a man whom Eve thought was probably a closeted man, and her dad. And probably her mom had okayish sex. She had two children and never really experienced an orgasm. And not that orgasm is the be all and the end all. But my God, when Eve told us that, we were just like, oh, my God, go mom. And then she wanted more. She wanted more. Of course she wanted more. She had a lot of catching up to do. The thing is, there are studies that say that heterosexual women have the least amount of orgasms of all of straight men, gay men, even lesbian women, bisexual women. Yeah, hetero women down at the bottom. Uh, I was going to say, I would imagine lesbian women definitely are close to the top because they actually know what's going on down there. Yes, a lot of women broaden their sexuality at midlife. We've seen Elizabeth Gilbert do that, where she partnered with her dear friend, a female friend, and Glendon Doyle marrying Abby Wambach. So you see, actually, a lot of women at midlife become much more expansive in their sexuality. And it's tempting, but I, I, I actually am very much a heterosexual woman. I love my girlfriends, and I think they're beautiful, and I enjoy their company so much. I just don't want to have sex with them. And we've all talked about that. Go, no one's having sex with each other. You're fine. But the belief that middle-aged women are not interested in sex is really a harmful narrative because not just that it's dismissive of our whole humanity and expression of our humanity, but in cases, if people don't believe that older women are interested in sex and they probably aren't having sex, we probably shouldn't ask them about whether they're practicing safe sexual practices if they happen to be single. And that's why we're seeing a rise in STIs among boomers and in nursing homes. So there are real costs for that. And also, I just want to say that 
not every woman wants to be sexual at midlife and beyond. And that is so okay. Because having a healthy sexual life is part of the aging narrative, which is that or aging successfully, like what's aging unsuccessfully, basically death. So those are really bad terms. But because that's part of the narrative, then that also puts pressure on women who really maybe are, are not interested in sex for whatever their reason. And so no one should feel bad about your choices. If you want to be sexual, go do it. If you don't want to be sexual, don't do it. If you want to change how you express your sexuality, please feel free to go and do that. And there should be no more shame or judgment about a woman's sexuality, really, ever. Yeah, it's really, it's it's a, an expression, but like, it's not your business what's going on in the bedroom. <laughs> really. It's true. It's actually disturbing. It's sometimes people in there, yeah, younger people will go, ew, granny, ew. And I want to say, excuse me, 20-year-old, when you're in your 70s, are you suddenly not interested in having sex anymore or do you want to keep it going? You're going to be 70 one day or 60 if you are so blessed and so Get out of yourself by saying you because you're going to want it. That's true. I'm saying like it's nobody's business. But I think on the other hand, I'm constantly saying these are the things we should be talking about so that the 20 year olds do know that someday they're going to be 70 if they're lucky and they're still going to be the same people. Yes. You know, a lot of times I see these things like, what would you tell your younger self? And I understand that because you want to be so loving to your younger girl or teen when you're like, oh, honey, you were so insecure and you were so shy and you really thought you were stupid and you thought you were fat and you thought you were ugly. And you were like, you were none of those things. You were all these wonderful things. I would like us to do that to our future selves. I want us to treat our future selves like Lady Gaga treated Liza Minnelli at the Academy Awards. She reached down to her and said, I've got your back. I want us to have our back for our future selves. We want to be kind to that future woman. We want her to live with joy and love and sex and health and safety. We want to be kind to that woman because we're going to be that woman one day. And how do we want her to live? We want her to live her best life. So be kind to your future self. So your next chapter, you touched on this already, the I do, I don't, I won't. You've said something about being single. I know your upcoming book is The Definitive Guide to Living Apart Together Relationships. Yes. So you've had an interesting history of, it's not that I don't want to be with people. I just don't know if I want to be with them all the time. Yes, I was late to that recognition. I grew up with a certain romantic script. I knew what it looked like. And it looked like this. You meet someone, and this is for heterosexual women. Now, same-sex couples can get married, so it's different. But it's now, it's a similar script. You meet someone, fall in love maybe move in together, then you get married, then you have kids in the house and the minivan and the whatever. It looks like that. And then when I got divorced at midlife, there's no script when you already have the kids and you have the career and you have a place to live. And then you go, huh, what do I need a romantic partner for? It was the first time I really started to think about that. But I will say that the first 
real boyfriend I had after my divorce was someone I loved very much. And I did think that we would live together at some point because not then because our our kids were young ish. And the thought of melding families sounded like hell. But I thought at some point kids got older and, you know, so I would ask him and he'd be vague and I would feel hurt. And then the longer we lived apart, the more I thought like, oh, this is really good. We get to see each other. And then he goes home and then I can do my thing. And then I realized that's my my preference to live apart from a romantic partner. And I'm pretty upfront about that. I think for some men that's, ooh, because I really want someone around the house to do that stuff that I don't want to do. And then other ones are like, yeah, good. So those are my people. But not everyone feels that way. I have friends who have gotten married for the second time at midlife and so happy nesting and doing all that stuff. And it's just that there's no script for what you want at midlife. It doesn't look like perhaps the way many of us wanted it to look like or expected it to look like when we were younger. There's so many ways to partner or not partner now. Even just being a single woman, and there's so many of us, is not so weird nowadays, although it still comes with a certain amount of judgment. And also as you age, if you don't have children, it's who's going to take care of you? I'm like, you should figure that out too, because your children may not want to take care of you. I think it's always assumed that the kids are going to take care of you. And at least in my family, I can say that of six of us, there's people in different states, there's people in different countries. I'm in a different country. You can't assume just because you've really racked up the kids that anybody's right. going to take care of you. Although I did read, I think there was, I think it was Japanese. It was a family that was suing their children for not taking care of them in their old age. And I like, I guess I could say to my kids, okay, watch out. There's going to be a big lawsuit if you guys don't step up to the plate. <laughs> Do you think it's an interesting thing that women are feeling more and more or people are feeling more and more like they can be re in relationships and you don't have to have that narrative of we have to live together, we have to get married, we have to do all these things. Because especially once you get past a certain point, you you are set in your ways. You do like your shoes to be stored in a certain place. You do, there's it, It's silly things, but it's things that like I like to read an hour at night with the light on and I don't want somebody to tell me to turn it off, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. it, it makes perfect sense that sometimes people can be in love, support each other through a loving relationship, but not have to live in the exact same house. Or even sleep in the same bed. They call it a sleep divorce, which is a stupid name in my mind. But if you don't get a restful night's sleep, it knocks off years of your life. OK, we're not just talking about just, oh, you're feeling cranky the next day. No, it knocks off years of your life. So if you're with a partner who snores or has restless leg syndrome or whatever, there's nothing wrong with sleeping in separate beds. You can still do everything that you can do in a bed anywhere, including the bed, and then just sleep separately. I mean, I feel bad for women and men in past generations who had fewer choices. Women had to get married for financial security. And that made men be responsible for a lot of stuff that they may or may not have wanted. I look at my dad 
And my parents were married 61 years, although my mom moved out of the house for about 10 years. So she was the first one and I didn't even register with me until I was older. I'm like, what the hell was that about? But I think if my dad were a young man today, I don't think he would have gotten married and had children. It's not to say he didn't love my mom or he didn't love my sister and me. It's just, I think he would have been happier being a bachelor. And the same thing with Eve's father, who was very potentially closeted gay man, who was probably married because that's what society said he had to do. And yes, it might not have been that he didn't love her mother, but he wasn't living the life he wanted to lead either. So there's a lot of bad things about modern times, but there's a lot of things that I think we're learning that'll be good for everyone. I feel bad about more than just my neck. (laughs) Okay, Vicky will confess. You do look in the mirror and go, oh, what fresh hell is this? This last year or so, I have developed jowls. Jowls! Like, they just popped out of nowhere. And I'm like, really? 20 Ow. years on me, and I have jowls. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, every day there's a new assault on what you think you look like. And the very funny thing is, I, mean, I just got cataract surgery on both my eyes and my because my night vision was very bad i did not realize how bad my day vision was because i looked in the mirror at my hairdressers and i was like oh my god i really am gray and my friends were like yeah we tried to tell you that you kept saying that you barely gray and i'm like you're gray." yeah i could actually see just how gray i was i saw all sorts of imperfections that my fuzzy eyes made look soft and yes it was a very harsh awakening. We live in a youth and beauty obsessed culture and beauty very narrowly defined. Thin, blonde, blue-eyed, blah, blah, blah. Very few of us actually look like that. And so it excludes the expansiveness of, of what is beautiful. I think three in 10 women in a study said that What they feared most about aging was not like health issues, but losing their attractiveness, because that's what a society like ours does. It makes us focus on the wrong things. It consumes our time, energy and money chasing youth and, and beauty, which is instead of just redefining what is beautiful and what is youthful. Not necessarily your actual age, but how you present in the world, how you move in the world, how you feel in your body. And I will say that I am much more comfortable in my body at age 65 than I was in my 20s when I was cute and fit and blonde and blue eyed. And I was painfully shy and stupid. (laughs) I do like that that you speak a lot in the book, too, about this obsession with youth. And that as we get older, there's so much, I still feel young. I am young. I'm not growing older. And what is wrong with actually just the fact that, yeah, you are growing older. (laughs) We've been growing older since we were born. Let's just put it out there. And old is good because old means alive. As long as you keep aging, you're alive. And so just this past week, Kim Kardashian, whom I try not to pay 
much attention to was in Vogue magazine, I think, launching her new skin line of care products. I think it's a nine step process, $630, but you need all of them. Of course. And she famously said, joking, I'm sure, that if she was told that, that she had to eat poop, Every day to look young, she would probably do that. And of course, everyone was like making fun of of that. And that is the embodiment of internalized ageism and sexism. She's 41 years old. Every part of her has been manipulated and she still fears losing her youthful looks, which she will. She will. I'm, I'm sorry. And so people who can be more gracious to themselves are actually happier as they age because things are going to happen to your body. And then how much does that really matter? Because if you if you feel bad about your body, it interferes with even your sex life. And I have friends who are like, oh, yeah, but my stomach. And I'm like, no, if you're with some guy in bed and he wants to sleep with you, He's not looking at your stomach. He's thinking, yeah, right. So you're seeing the rolls and the wrinkles and the age spots and everything, but your partner it just doesn't. And, and if you're feeling bad about your body and the way you look, that shows in the way you move through the world. And what's sexy, I think, is when you feel good or as best as you can about yourself. And yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm feeling real good today. I'm moving this way. I like who I am. And not everyone, but for a lot of women, they really start to feel good about themselves at midlife and beyond. They experience what Margaret Mead called postmenopausal zest. You don't have to worry now about getting pregnant and all that stuff. And I know you can come into your own. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but if it happens and you feel you can accept with grace that your body is changing, your face is changing, but does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? Not really. You're still lovable. We all love people who are wrinkly and saggy and age-spotted, whether it's our aunties and uncles or grandparents or our parents or step-parents or neighbors. We all love people who look old. And so you still can be lovable. And the pandemic taught women, well, we couldn't go get our hair done and we couldn't get the Botox and we couldn't even get a mani-pedi or whatever, all of the beauty routines, we were still lovable. I mean, we were still, people still wanted to sleep with us. People still cared about us. And then you realize, yeah, I was not looking my best self, but you know what? It wasn't so bad. (laughs) I felt a lot more relaxed. Right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, you know, I still, I don't shower and shampoo every day like I used to. I don't put makeup. If I have to put makeup on more than twice a week, I'm pissed. <laughs> so maybe we've learned something from this. I don't know. Yeah. I like to think that there's at least some sort of silver lining in what was a pretty gray cloud. Yeah. <laughs> we still have so many chapters to get through. <laughs> from Mean Girls to BFFs and Golden Girls. My girlfriends and I are... are We're all around the same age, although I have younger friends and I have older friends. And we talk about, um, well, first of all, these are women I've known for a very long time. 
mostly known through my children's school. So you hope that they, their friends have cool parents and then you glom onto them. As I've known uh, uh, many of my female friends for a very long time, but there's some new ones too, accidental friendships I've called them, where I just stumble upon someone. I've always treasured my friends, more so now. What happens very often is when you're in a romantic relationship, you tend to prioritize your romantic partner over friendships. And that's expected in the society. We consider romantic love as the best and the most important. You can go on Facebook and put in a relationship, but you, there's nothing that says, I met my new BFF. There's nothing. There's all sorts of celebrations for romantic love. There's none for friendships, although there is galantines. But we don't celebrate platonic love as much as we do romantic love. And so I have really prioritized that because I believe friendships matter. Female friendships matter a lot. And it's not to say that you have to have a lot of, of female friends or friends in general, but it's very important to have friends. Even if you're partnered, what happens at this age is first there is such a thing as a divorce. And we've seen a lot of men who have put all their eggs in their romantic partnership are often, if they don't have a, a social network, are often quite lonely at midlife if they get a divorce. Women do better because we tend to be the social organizer. So we generally have some friends, but also the average age of widowhood in America is 59. And COVID is pushing the dial on that earlier. It's a lot of young COVID widows. And so you can't count on having a partner until old age. You may not. If we're heterosexual, we tend to marry or partner with men who are older than we are. So they often get very ill or die before we do. Women live longer than men and women overwhelmingly spend a big chunk of their older years alone. So like I say, if you want to think about what you want for that future woman, I would hope that we would nurture friendships and friends and I say, oh, okay, well, how are we going to age? I was looking into buy a plot of land where we could all put tiny houses and then build like a big house with a kitchen and a communal table and a few extra bedrooms for like when kids come to visit. And then we'll like hire a cook if we need it or as we age, we'll hire a nurse to come and check. We'll take care of each other. You know, it's a nice fantasy. It's like kind of a Golden Girls kind of fantasy, but it's that's just not a fantasy. There are a lot of women who are planning that. Single moms are buying houses together to not only have a support network, but to help raise each other's children. So people are getting very creative. That's the most important thing, actually, as we age. Isolation and loneliness are big problems for a lot of older people. And rather than just highlight romantic love, to think about all the ways that we can have community and love in our life and celebrate them and nourish them. It's like the hippie generation version of the Golden Girls, because the way you described it, it's like a commune for the Golden Girls. Yeah. And it's not that I want to just live with people my age. Like, I would never want to live in like in a retirement community. And I've been fantasizing about retirement recently. And then when I found out the history of retirement, that it was a way to get older people 
out of the workplace and pay them to go away. Then I got indignant. I'm like, how dare you? So it's the same also with these over 55 communities, which started springing up in Florida and this and that. It was like, here, older people, go live amongst your kind. Don't go <laughs> look at you and your sacky eight yeah. thoughts. Go away. <laughs> go play your canasta and play your golf and wear those brown socks with the white sneakers. You go. So I don't want that. I prefer multi-generational and intentional communities because I think younger people with older people remove some of the stigma about aging. So your next chapter is it's probably just your hormones. It is so infuriating how women's health concerns have been dismissed throughout history how when we presented as female, we were burned as witches or we were called hysterical. When you really get into the history of women and health, if that doesn't just make you want to lose your crap, I, I don't know what will. And of course, we're seeing that now with our, an assault on our reproductive rights in the States. This has caused women true harm. And I found out that originally no one paid attention to women in, until they were pregnant. That's when they got doctors. Not before, not after. Yeah. And doctors were men. Women were kept out of the profession. And when there were midwives and this kind of thing, they took those rights. away. It's just really horrible how we have been treated. And... Even today, it's astounding. Doctors, gynecologists get maybe an hour or two training in perimenopause and menopause. If that, this is half of the population. This is something that consumes a woman's life for eight to 10 years, yeah. not a small chunk. And it's not just the loss of fertility. There are real health impacts that happen because of this phase that we go through. A very normal phase, by the way, just like puberty is. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's what happens to a woman's body. And we don't have doctors who have enough training in that. And when you think about that, you go, are you kidding? Does this not even matter? And yeah, it's infuriating. I think I was going through menopause right around the time of my divorce. And I think by 50, I was done. And I can't really remember, but I don't think I got much guidance about it. I don't think I knew that there were heart risks and all of I just didn't know anything about anything. And that's really wrong. And it could really, like I say, it could do real harm to women's health, emotional and physical and sexual. I'm relatively healthy and just got my cataract surgery. I do have arthritis in my neck. So things are happening to my body and that's natural. And so what I want to do is delay decline as much as possible. I do all the things. I move, I exercise, I eat. Well, and I try to take care of my body. But you know that certain things are going to happen as you age. Most of us are going to develop disabilities of some kind or another, either temporary or permanently. And as a society, we're not really prepared for 
so many older people because there's the world is about to become very old very soon. And we will have a lot of disabilities for people who have been abled most of their life. And we're going to see more people with long COVID, which we are not prepared to deal with. So as a society, we need to really pay attention to that. And we need to pay attention, finally, to women's health, because there are a lot of us. And because women live longer than men, those older people very soon, it's going to be a majority women. The future really is female. Good. And it's, it's just your hormones is not going to cut it as a medical diagnosis. <laughs> if anyone says that, it's like, no. And it puts the onus on women to have to educate themselves. But I'm for self-education, not to the point where you know, you're going to get antagonistic with your doctors, or you could also be very wrong once you start going on the internet. You can go down the rabbit hell of health issues, but we do need to speak up about our concerns and not accept things like, oh, it's just your hormones. That's not a diagnosis. No, no. <laughs> I did say we would talk a little bit about your finances because I think that's something that was a big change in your life, especially after your divorce as well. So not that I'm going to ask your personal intimate finance details, but you do have a chapter called Investments Are a Girl's Best Friend. Here is the thing. My dad was a big player in the stock market. He did his own research, bought his own whatever, and held on to things. Did he teach his two daughters anything about the stock market? No. Why? Because we'd probably get married and our husbands would take care of that. I'm a boomer and my parents were, my dad was the silent generation, you know, World War II generation. And that's what my mom did. That's what a lot of women did in those days. They got married and let their husbands take care of it. That, and I was a hippie when I was younger and I never really cared about money because, I, ah, la, 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 la. you know, I just go hiking, protest. I didn't really think about money and I made you know, pretty decent money in my 20s when I was single after I had my first divorce. And then I got married. And like I said, I worked part time. So I dialed back uh, my work. And then I found myself divorced at midlife and went back to work full time at a low salary because that's what newspapering is. Although also I'm a woman. And so therefore, even less than. And I realized I, I had nothing. I have no savings. I had nothing. And I realized I needed to figure some stuff out. So I educated myself about investments. I bought the family home, never imagining I would be able to keep it. My former husband didn't want it. He had bought it for what now is a low price. It wasn't low then, but now it's... Whew, can't find anything like that. So he bought it a long time ago as an investment and it had a rental unit. I didn't think I'd be able to hold on to it, but I did because I had a rental unit. And thank God I did, because if I hadn't on my salary, I would not be able to live anywhere in the Bay Area. Just nowhere. I would be renting a room in someone's condo because that's all I could afford. And that scared me. Now, did I make a bad choice in dialing back my hours? Well, a lot of women do that when they're care taking children. They have children. 
So that's not a bad choice. It's what a lot of conservatives would like us to do. It's what a lot of women themselves would like to do. And then you realize, oh, wow, that really impacts what kind of financial situation I'm in. Oh, that really impacts my social security earnings. And I didn't really think about all of that stuff. You don't think when you're married and it's a happy marriage and you're just starting to raise kids, oh, yeah, I probably should make sure I keep my full-time job for when we get a divorce. (laughs) No, you don't think about that. And also, you don't often think about investments. Now, I'm not saying finances. There's many women who pay the bills and this and that. That's different. Investments. Where is the money going? How is it being invested? It can't just be savings. And a a lot of even younger people, millennials, there was a recent study that said they're willing to let their male, their husbands deal with it because, oh, we, I am better at this and he's better at that. Um, No, don't become one of those women at midlife who either finds herself widowed or divorced and knows nothing about anything. And this happens all the time. It happens so much and it's a huge problem and it absolutely is horrific for women. And I talk with some friends who have daughters. I have sons. And I'm like, oh, is such and such investing? And she's like, well, no, she's really good saver. I'm like, no, no. And I mean, savings. Women are very good at savings. Is she investing? And then my friend said, I don't know how to do that. And why don't you learn together? You both need to know. Just because you have an investment advisor, as Farouche Tarobi, I think I'm saying her name right, says financial journalist, No one cares more about your money than yourself. Mm. Nobody, not your spouse, not your financial advisor, nobody. Know your money. And and it, it makes it seem like I'm obsessed with money. I'm not. It's just that women live longer than men. We need to understand that. There's a reason why women overwhelmingly live in poverty as they age. And it's not because we're making bad choices. The whole system has been set up to keep us from our money in the past and still. And so women have a complicated relationship with money. I know that I did. And so it's never too late to start to understand that no one will care more about your money than you. And you need to understand how to support your life moving forward. It's very important. So a phrase. You're not too old for that. I feel like I was late to the game. And besides being able to hold on to the house, I will say this saved me. I was lucky, which is a horrible thing to say, because what I'm saying is I was lucky my parents passed on money to me. Now, I'd rather have my parents be alive. I would rather they have used that money in their old age to do the things that they wanted to do. When they died, I inherited not a lot of money, certainly not enough to retire on. However, it saved my butt. It was their gift to me among the many gifts that they gave me with their love and their generosity and that I hope to be able to pass on to my boys. But you can't really count on that. If that had not have happened, I was on the trajectory to being poor in my old age, too. Yeah. And that's and that's scary. That was a wake up call for me. And statistically, it is such a thing that it is really scary that more women. Well, it's scary for you to say somebody that's a much younger generation is still going, oh, I don't know about that. 
Yeah. And I think every woman and society as a whole should go, huh, why are there so many poor old <laughs> women? Why? Is it some policies or are they just all making bad choices? I did quite, quote unquote, the right things. I got a college degree. I worked. I saved. I had children after marriage. And the conservatives really like to say, I did all of that stuff, but I'm a woman. I've been underpaid. I worked part time to raise my children. And all of that has impacted my financial future moving forward. So even if women do want to drop out of the workforce or cut back, and many have had to do that during COVID, and I really fear for those women moving forward, what's going to happen to them financially, at least be aware, start thinking about your future financial self. We've talked a lot about all of the bad things that can happen, but yes. at the same time, you end the book with a love letter to women. Yes, because I do love women. I do. I love men too. Don't get me wrong. I love my boys. I loved my dad. I loved my former husbands and quite a number of boyfriends. I want to be like Lady Gaga. I want to say, I got your back. Let's have each other's back. We need each other to create a better society for women everywhere. Whenever women get a little bit of power, there's always a pushback. We see that all the time. And women, I would love to to support each other in just our, our, our womanhood. We have differences because of all sorts of things, but we are women in this world. And because of that, we have shared experiences. Let's be supportive of each other because there's power in numbers. There's power in numbers. And let's advocate for each other. And please, let's advocate for ourselves be kind to the future women we're becoming. I always ask for a quote. Oh my God, I forgot. <laughs> I did not. You know, it's oh. actually perfect. I love what you just said. So I do not mind one bit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really don't mind one bit because I feel yeah, like... I was going to say something cliche, which is like every day is a gift, which is like the most cliche of the cliche. I do feel that at my age and in this world right now, where there's mass shootings where there's a health crisis where so many things feel overwhelming. We truly, every day is a gift. It, it is. It, it matters. And oh, treasure, treasure that day, treasure the people in your life. I know that sounds horrible and cliche, but my poor kids have to deal with like emoji Kiss emojis almost, yeah, several times a week. Oh, God, mom, something happens to me and something can happen at any moment. And you're, I'm very aware of that. If they see a kissy emoji from their mom, that's not so bad. Exactly. <laughs> I love that your first solo book happened past what would be considered maybe midlife. You do keep proving that you're not too old for that. So thank you so much for coming and sharing with a complete surprise. But thank you for kind of mirroring your own life to the chapters in your book and proving that you're not too old for that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so delightful to talk to you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. 
You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.